This morning, as we dive into the word, our scripture reading is going to come from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. And this is God's word. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever preaches and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. You know, we've been going through our sermon series entitled, uh, The Hard Sayings of Jesus. That throughout the Gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in these Gospels, there are multiple teachings of Jesus Christ. And if you allow his teachings to just sink in a, a little bit, a little past the surface level, what you're going to come to realize is that these are some often some difficult truths to actually swallow. See, for some of us, Jesus' teaching is extremely difficult to just understand. He often taught in parables, and, you know, for many of us, you know, it may throw us off when we're reading the scriptures for the first or even the second time. And often, without knowing the context uh, in terms of when that uh, p- passage is, is being stated, uh, his sayings may not make it as much sense, you know, when you're reading this on the first glance. So in many ways, his teachings is extremely difficult to understand. They are hard sayings. Yet on the other side, Jesus' teachings is actually extremely difficult to accept. His teaching His primary purpose in his teachings, in these sayings, was to showcase that Jesus Christ is the living Son of God. So what does that mean? It means that it's going to challenge you. It's going to confront you on all of your thoughts of, of religion. It's going to challenge and confront you in terms of what you value in life and essentially what you believe today. I mean, even as I was preparing for this week on this passage in particular, I was also challenged in both ways. We are no different. I was challenged because I had a difficult time, and I was kind of, uh, you know, uh, studying this passage. I'm like, what is Jesus actually trying to say? Yet at the same time, as it's kind of allowing me to sink in, it then began to challenge me in terms of my belief and Do I really believe what he's saying to me right now? See, the reality is is that Scripture should challenge you and I in some shape or form. If we believe that Scripture is ultimate truth, it's something that's always going to challenge us in light of what we believe. And today, we're going to spend the next 30 minutes just unpacking uh, this hard saying in particular when he says that he came to not abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
So I have three points for us this morning as we unfold this hard saying. First point, what does Jesus proclaim? Uh, Secondly, what does this proclamation tell us about Scripture? And thirdly, how does this proclamation shape us? Let's dive into our first point. Well, what is he proclaiming? Look at verse 17 with me. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus Christ, in this passage, he is proclaiming something quite radical. He's proclaiming that he's not come to uh, abolish the law, but to fulfill them. And this is a real radical statement when you see this, right? He's saying, yeah, I'm not going to abolish the law, but I'm going to fulfill it. I want you to consider this proclamation with me. Because when we think about all of the kings and the rulers of the world, what do they typically do? They start over. They start with a brand new agenda. They start with a brand new regime. They completely start things over. But what does Jesus do? Unlike any other ruler, unlike any other king, he says, I'm not going to overthrow, but I'm going to fulfill what was already declared. Essentially, what Jesus Christ is saying, he's that I'm going to do what is impossible for any human figure to do, but I'm going to do it. Secondly, why is this so radical? Secondly, we see that Jesus, he's not just talking about the law, but he's talking about all of Scripture. Now, this is important to note. Why? Because on the glance level, when you look at verse 17 and 18, we see the word law twice. And on the glance level, if you just see the word law, what, do you, what may you uh, kind of primarily go to? Just this automatic assumption that, oh, Jesus, he's just talking about the Ten Commandments, right? He's just talking about the law. So what do we reduce Jesus to in that? Well, Jesus is just a good, moral, law-abiding teacher and, and follower. But what do we see? When we look more in depth, it's actually important to note that Jesus, he's not just talking about the law, but what do we see in verse 17? The law and the prophets. In fact, if we could go a little further in verse 18, yes, we see that word law again, but that word law is often translated in generally as God's word, meaning when we look at verse 17 and 18 and he refers to the law, Jesus is talking about all of scripture. Jesus is saying he's not fulfilling just the law. He's fulfilling all of the Torah. He's fulfilling all of God's history. He's fulfilling all of the poetry and the wisdom. He's talking about fulfilling all of what the prophets proclaimed. In other words, Jesus is proclaiming that he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Now, what does that really mean? Um, you know, a pastor and a Christian author, Timothy Keller, he, he, he shares this illustration about this fulfillment idea, and I thought it was really helpful, and I want to read it for us. Think about a filled cup. There is no purpose to a cup if there is no liquid. At the same time, the liquid can't be grasped without the cup. And here, when Jesus says that he fulfills the law, Jesus is essentially saying that he is the liquid and the Old Testament is the cup. In other words, without the Old Testament, you can't fully grasp who Jesus Christ is. Yet at the same time, without Jesus Christ, then you can't really understand what the Old Testament is truly about. 
So when Christ declares that he is fulfilling the scriptures, he is saying that he will perfectly uh, live by what God demands of us. Jesus is saying that he's going to fulfill all of the poetry and all of the literature wisdom because it was actually alluding to him. He's saying that all of the prophecies that was foretold about the coming of this new king are now in full appearance and bodily form in Jesus Christ. When Jesus says that he's fulfilling the law, he's saying that all of scripture is about him. That's why we don't have to live by what the Old Testament asks of us at times. We don't observe the cleanliness laws because the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. We don't have to do animal sacrifices because Jesus Christ was our sacrificial lamb. But what's the problem? Even though Jesus Christ says that scripture is essentially all about him, our natural inclination is to always make it about us. You know, if I can say it this way, we never look at Scripture with the truth that Christ already fulfilled the law. We always look at Scripture with the lie that we have to fulfill the law ourselves. So rather looking at the law in light of God's sheer goodness and his grace and his kindness, we always look at the law, we always look at Scripture as like this spiritual litmus test on how good you are and how you're fulfilling the law and how you're going to accomplish those things. You know, there's this quote on the bulletin uh, for us this morning from uh, the great comedic scholar Chris Rock, and he illustrates this perfectly. He says, the other day, I gave a homeless guy $5. Should have been a good deed. But I didn't give him $5 for him himself. I gave him $5 for me. You ever give or do something good just hoping God will notice you? I basically was trying to kickstart a blessing. Like I was basically looking at God as I was giving this bum some money. Look at me, God. I'm a good person. See, when you make God's word about you, this is the... This is the mentality, this is the thought, right? That, you know, if I, if I do a certain good thing, if I abide by the law, it's a way of, uh, uh, you know, seeking his approval. It's a way of saying, look at me, look at me. But when we look at the law and the purpose of the law and Jesus fulfilling the law, it's essentially to say, well, look at him. See, when you make God's word about you, you know what's going to happen? Typically, is you end up turning into more of a, just a miserable life in some sense. Because what you're doing is you turn the law into what you can do for him rather than what God has already done. And when scripture and obeying it becomes about how good of a person you are, and you trying to fulfill the law rather than how good and uh, gracious God actually is, Right? You end up living this law, this approval-seeking, this way of gaining his acceptance. And that is terrible. I'm telling you right now, that is terrible for your soul. And typically, I see this in two ways when this happens, especially for me, because I often run into that trap. One of the first thing we often see when we kind of seek God's law for his approval, well, number one, you become arrogant and proud. Like, you end up being super legalistic. You end up becoming extremely self-righteous. 
You always look at your thriving and your flourishing in light of your religiosity. You're creating this false standard for yourself, and also you're creating a false standard upon other people. So what happens? Yeah, you're never winsome, you're never approachable, and you're just never content. The other side of the coin, you become discouraged and you become ashamed. You realize that you're consistently failing. God's word is perfect. His law is perfect. And God's law says that we are not. So in that framework, you realize that you're constantly failing and you're only failing because you can't live up to God's standards and you always feel like you're being disappointed. And as you feel like you're being disappointed, well, then you become ashamed. And as you become uh, ashamed, you start to hide and you start to hide from God. You start to hide and you don't want to admit who you are as a person and you essentially hide from others. You hide your sin to everyone. And the scriptures without the truth that Jesus has already fulfilled the law at best only becomes a handbook of do's and don'ts. It's anti-gospel, if you will, because your obedience to God's word is all about trying to gain his approval rather than your obedience naturally being the overflow based on the truth that in Jesus Christ you are already approved. Question for us this morning. In what ways is your obedience to God stemming from a falsehood that you are meant to fulfill the law rather than the truth that Jesus has already fulfilled it? Well, how does he fulfill it? This leads us to our second point. Look at verse 18 with me. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Now here in verse 18, what we see is the word disappear, and it's specifically written twice. And that means Jesus is trying to emphasize something. What is he emphasizing? He's emphasizing that, yes, that the heavens and the earth will one day disappear. Yet, at the same time, what will not disappear is God's very word. What will not disappear, what is infinite and everlasting, is God's infallible word. What does that tell us right now if that is true? If God's word is infallible and it is everlasting and it is eternal, what does that mean for us right now? It means this. It tells us that if you're a Christian... Or, if you're considering the Christian faith for a first time, a non-negotiable is that Scripture is God's very word, and that this, God, and this very word should always be truth for the believer. It means something that we should always be diving into. It means that it's always something we should be reflected on. It's something that we should always be studying and meditating on. Every little word Every little letter, every little stroke of a pen. And that's why in verse 19, Jesus continues, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is essentially saying is that all of Scripture, 
All of his word is significant. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. And what we see in light of God's inerrant and imperfect word, what makes this word so amazing and so uh, true is that we see Jesus Christ affirming these things. Jesus Christ, his entire life, his ministry was always a reflection of how he viewed Scripture and how he allowed it to, 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 to work in him in light of ministry. That all of the things that he also experienced, all of the pain and the sufferings that he went through, was the one thing that he always used in terms of his entire life in ministry. He always used Scripture. And when you believe that, when you believe that Christ accomplished all that was written in Scripture through the use of Scripture, it will radically change you, not just in terms of how you view God's Word, but it will also radically change how you live life today. What do I mean? Let's look at Jesus' life and let's parallel it to our lives right now. What do we see in Matthew chapter 4? In Matthew chapter 4, Jesus was tempted three times by Satan. And as he was tempted by uh, Satan three times, what does he declare every single time? It is written. What does that mean for us right now? It means that you and I, we can read Scripture means we can specifically read and meditate on Matthew chapter 4, and it's going to remind us that we are far greater in worth. We are far greater in light of our integrity over all the things that actually tempt us. What does that mean? It means that you can fight against all of the worldly temptations. In Matthew chapter 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he tell Peter? He tells Peter, don't fight back. Lay down the sword. Why? So that the scriptures would be fulfilled. What does that mean for us? It means that we can read and meditate on scripture. We can specifically read and meditate on Matthew chapter 26. And it's going to remind us that we have a far greater worth and we can be far greater than our enemies. So we too can forgive even when we don't want to. On the cross, we see Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's he doing? He's quoting Psalm 22. In the most amount of pain and suffering on the cross. What does that mean for us? It means that we can read the accounts of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection on the cross. And it reminds us that even in the greatest amount of pain and suffering, the brokenness, the weakness, the sin, and the circumstance, yet we can still cry out to God because he hears us, for he hears us even in our groaning. So when we read Matthew 28 and the rest of the Gospels, it sees that 
we too can now have an everlasting hope. See, Jesus Christ, he lived his life accordingly to the scriptures in perfect obedience through all that he has been through. And in the same way, we too can live a life according to scripture. And I'm confident that not only will it comfort you in the most difficult of times, but it's going to also empower you in the most uh, amount of weakness. So what does that mean for us right now? Like, what does that practically mean, right? Very simply, because I don't want to assume that we all get it, because I know I don't get it at times, but this is the reminder to just take God's word seriously. You know, paraphrasing uh, Psalms chapter 1, verse 2 and 3, he says that blessed are those who delight in in the law of the Lord, the one that meditates on it day and night, because that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, and what does it do? It will yield fruit in every season. So what does that mean? If we're taking uh, what Jesus has done to fulfill the law and he does it through scripture in itself, well, then we too should be doing the same thing. What does that mean? Start your day in scripture. Download that app, right? Look at that Bible verse. Whatever it takes, let that be step one. Take the word seriously. See, let the truth shape you. Let the word shape you. Let it change you. Let not, uh, 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 you know, uh, worldly influences and, and social media and secular advice influence you and shape you, but let it be God's very word. Well, what does this proclamation tell us? What does it, how does it shape us? Look at verse 20 with me. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in, in the Gospels, uh, you have a, a religious group known as the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are often presented as, you know, hypocritical, hypocritical excuse me, and uh, proud opponents of Jesus, right? So some of the common patterns of the, the Pharisees is that they were always extremely self-righteous. They were real smug in their delusion in terms of how they're going to please God because essentially what did they do and what did they always try to do? They always try to keep the law, right? So these Pharisees, what did they have? They had pride. They took pride in terms of their outward, uh, uh, you know, uh, appearance. Uh, they took pride in their outward change, but the reality is they were functioning with impure hearts. See, at the heart of it, the Pharisees, they rejected God's inner work in the favor of outer appearance. And I know right now some of us may be thinking, well, you know, now is my time to talk about how there are so many Pharisees in the church. And you're probably not wrong in a sense. But when we look at Scripture, I think what Jesus is really trying to point to is not, uh, is not in a way of saying, I need you to look at all the Pharisees in the church. I think what Jesus is trying to do right here is to look at yourself. I think what Jesus is trying to do is say, I need you to look at yourself and really consider the inner Pharisee within you. I think what Jesus is trying to do right here is he's trying to challenge you and I of our Pharisee-like tendencies. Well, you don't believe me? Well, 
How many times do we overlook character with competencies? How many times is it always about what we're doing at the church and all of the volunteer services and all of the titles and roles that we have at church? How many times is it all about serving and doing things rather than just genuinely and intimately loving Jesus outside of the church? See, yes, this is true where we see Jesus, he specifically does say, it has to be one's righteousness, even greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Yes, we do need that. But what does Scripture also tell us? Scripture says that it can't be us. Scripture tells us that it can't be about our righteousness because it's never going to be good enough. Scripture tells us that because of sin, no matter how hard we try, our righteousness will never, ever, ever be good enough to enter God's kingdom. Romans 3 verse 23, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So Jesus can't be talking about our righteousness. So when Christ talks about a righteousness surpassing the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, what is he talking about? He's not talking about the righteousness that we produce. He's talking about a righteousness that was freely given. And it was most certainly given freely. What do we see in, our, in the scriptures is that God, he loved us so much. And he loved us so much that he would send his son, as John chapter 3, verse 16 proclaims, and that in his love for us, he would send someone that is so perfectly righteous. He would send someone that was so perfectly obedient. And he lived the life that we were called to live, and he died the death we were meant to die. And it was on the cross where his righteousness, his work that would satisfy the wrath of God, his work, his righteousness would pay for the penalty of sin. And it would be his work and his righteousness that gave us access to God himself. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, we become the righteousness of God. What does that mean for us right now, beloved? It means that our obedience to God's word, which we are called to do, but is not to obtain acceptance, but we simply obey because we are already accepted. And if you believe in that, what I believe is that this becomes the end of our Pharisee-like tendencies towards God and other people. In other words, his life allows us to put death to our inner Pharisee. See, Jesus calls you and I to a different kind and quality of righteousness more than the scribes and the Pharisees, and we see it because of the righteousness that Christ has given us. And when that happens, what that will do what that will radically do and how that transforms you is that it will lead you to a greater humbleness. It will lead you to a greater humility, not only in your own walk, but in the walk with other people and also your walk with the church as a whole. See, when the gospel redeems us from our inner Pharisee, where we become less self-righteous and we become more self-reliant, 
two ways in how the gospel kind of shapes our self-righteousness. Number one, we observe rest more than our works. Observing rest over our works-orientedness. What do I mean? You know, in light of our, our walk with the Lord, we always are so consumed about what we're doing and what we're not doing. But it's really interesting that the one thing that God calls us to do uh, in terms of the fourth commandment, which was to observe the Sabbath, is like the one thing we never really do. <laughs> Sabbath plays an important role in light of our spiritual formation. What does that mean for us? As we alluded to the second point, take the time to read Scripture. Take the time to pray and meditate and to time to reflect what is most important in your spiritual formation, which is God's very word. And I'm going to highlight this part, which is really important, is make sure that you are doing those things and you're not letting people know that you're doing them. Right? It's all about your intimacy with God himself. Secondly, Love for people over roles and responsibilities. In light of real gospel transformation, what I believe is far greater than just roles and responsibilities, ways to serve the church. And I'm not mad at that. I think we're all called to serve the church. Do not get me wrong. We need people to serve the church. We need people to help build the church. But I think what's so, so, so important, almost prior to that servitude in a sense, is that you're also connecting with the people that you are called to serve, that your desire for, for Jesus will, will just naturally grow into a love and desire for other people. So what does that mean? Is that in light of Christ's righteousness and that shaping you and uh, making you more humble in the same way that will grow your love for people? What does that practically mean? Right? Rather than seeking roles and responsibilities, seek the people that are surrounding you right now. Grow with people. Walk in relationship. Do life with people. Practically find some godly brothers and sisters, maybe a bit older and a bit wiser than you, and you submit to them, you say, I want to walk with you. And at the same time, don't get wrong, you need some younger brothers and sisters to kind of walk with, and you need some people just all around you, multiple life stages, all shapes and forms, and all uh, different nuances in terms of what relationship is, and you do that well in the context of a church. It's all about his righteousness, and my hope and my prayer was that it's in his righteousness, in his righteousness alone, it would begin the melting of just appearance-based faith. My hope and prayer is as we continue to journey together, and, you know, if this is your first time here, this is a fairly new journey in some ways. But my hope and my prayer is that we would journey together. And we would journey together not because of our righteousness, not because of what we do and what we don't do and what we need to do, but essentially because of what he has already done and what he will continue to, to do. Why? Because it is for the sake of, of our good and all of his glory. Would you join me in prayer this morning?